Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes. Welcome to episode 97 of the Headspace and Timing podcast. On today's show, I have a conversation with Dr. Eric Peterson of the RAND Corporation. We have a wide-ranging discussion on how perceptions of a lot of different things, the drinking behavior of our peers, how we think others will perceive us if we reach out for help, and misconceptions about therapy, impact our behavior. A therapist is not going to tell you, hey, you can't drink anymore. If you have PTSD or depression, they'll help you make the connection between the function of the drinking or the function of the pot smoking or whatever it is um, and your symptoms. And are there things you can do instead of drinking six or eight drinks uh, when you're feeling stressed that can help reduce that stress, you know, instead so that you, you know, don't get in a fight with your wife and then you're able to make the dance recital the next day. Make sure to check out the show notes for this episode on VeteranMentalHealth.com. If you're a longtime listener, thanks for coming back. I ask you to share the show with someone if you think it might be helpful to them. Make sure to hit subscribe on your podcast player of choice, which can be found at VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash platforms. Welcome to the Headspace and Timing Podcast, a show dedicated to breaking down the stereotypes around veteran mental health. My name is Dwayne France, and I'm a retired Army non-commissioned officer and a combat veteran of both Iraq and Afghanistan. After retiring from the Army, I took on a new mission as a clinical mental health counselor for my fellow service members. If you served in any branch of the military, then you're familiar with the M2 machine gun, the 50 cal. It's one of the most effective weapons in the military's arsenal. If the weapon's headspace and timing wasn't set correctly, however, it was just a useless chunk of metal. Veterans can be rendered inoperable if their headspace and timing's not set correctly either. That's my goal with this show, to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health and reduce the stigma against seeking support. Each week, we'll talk with mental health professionals, veterans, and those who support service members, veterans, and their families. We're going to have real and honest conversations about a topic that most just don't like to talk about, veteran mental health. Let's jump into this week's conversation. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Headspace and Timing Podcast. Once again, and as always, I really appreciate you taking the time to listen and learn more about veteran mental health. Um, we often have uh, mental health professionals who are actually practicing clinicians uh, that are on the show, and my guest today uh, does have the, the clinical experience. Um, but uh, if you've heard the show with uh, Terry Tanelian, you'll know, uh, or if you've been doing any kind of following about veteran mental health research, uh, you know that the RAND Corporation has done a lot in the space of trying to understand um, veteran mental health, the applications of veteran mental health in a lot of different aspects. Uh, and that's definitely where my guest today is coming from. Uh, Dr. Eric Peterson uh, is a, uh, a behavioral and social scientist with the RAND Corporation. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about his research today. Eric, welcome to the show. Great. Thanks so much, Dwayne. really appreciate the opportunity to be here. You know, I thank you for uh, taking the time. Um, actually, you and I have been 
uh, as you said before we started, uh, is sort of connecting on on Twitter and uh, and on social mm-hmm. media. And uh, and you've got some very interesting studies that I definitely want to get into. But before we talk about that, I'd like to give you an opportunity to tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Uh, sure. Yeah, I am a clinical. I'm a clinical psychologist. I got my degree from the University of Washington in 2012, and um, while I was there, I was mostly doing uh, intervention work with um, college students, and mostly focused on you know that 18 to 23 year old range. Um, and developing these brief interventions to try to help them reduce some of their heavy drinking and some of the consequences that come along with that. Um, but I was really kind of pulled towards working with this um, with the veteran population. So I did most of my clinical work at the I was at the Seattle VA for a little while, and then I did my clinical internship down at the uh, San Diego VA, working primarily with um, kind of the, the younger uh, adult veterans, um, but really the, the OEF, uh, OIF, OND. A veteran group uh, in the PTSD clinics as well as in the um, substance use clinics. So I've uh, been really, I uh, haven't done as much clinical work lately, but I'd like to get back into it at some point. But um, a lot of what I was doing was trying to take some of that work that I was doing with um, the college students, which was working really well for that young adult group, and seeing if we could apply some of that over to the um, young adult veteran population, some of those brief alcohol um, and mental health interventions that, that we had. Well, that's uh, that's really interesting to hear. Having been uh, an 18 year old um, private first class in Germany, um, I am well familiar. And um, having been in college and on college campuses before, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. well aware of the similarities um, just between uh, you know young men and women being away from their uh, parents the first time in a um, overly permissive environment, almost where. Um, alcohol use is uh, considered um, to be part of the the rite of passage. I mean, it's just part of everything. Right. Um, as as the father of a freshman daughter, I'm a little concerned about um, <laughs> uh, about whether my and not necessarily my sins will come back to haunt me. But there, but there is a um, there is a parallel, I think, between just young men and women leaving home for the first time and emerging into the, the greater world. And part of that, both the military and the college, um, having a drinking and, and substance use culture. Right. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's obviously many, many differences, but there's also, I mean, at least developmentally, they're kind of around the same, the same age uh, when they're moving away from home and getting involved in these new groups. So, um, and a lot of the research that we do and that a lot of people do is with college students because, you know, they're usually pretty accessible and I know a lot of them drink I mean, a lot of them don't drink that much, but they're, you're going to find some heavy drinkers in this population. So we test these interventions with them and then, you know, it would be great if we could just take some of those and transfer them over and see if they're working with, you know, other populations and the veteran population and particularly the young adult veteran population is, you know, a great group to see if some of these interventions work because they're still, you know, young enough where um, if you give them an intervention or, you know, a prevention program, um, it can maybe prevent them from then, you know, continuing to drink heavily or kind of, you know, stew with PTSD symptoms for years and years and years until these things become chronic um, and then, you know, just go unaddressed. So it's kind of a nice window in this kind of young adult area where you can try to intervene with somebody. Well, I can certainly say that I'm looking back on, again, my own personal experience. Like I said, I spent the first Three years of my military career, um, really my first time away from home at, at any significant amount, was in uh, Mannheim, Germany. Um, of course, no drinking age. And 
Uh, and even mm-hmm. looking back on that, I, I can acknowledge, and, and I have before, that uh, it, at that point, knowing what I know now, um, I had a severe substance use um, uh, concern. Honestly, I didn't, I didn't drive for the, I didn't even get my driver's license in Germany because I didn't want to drink and drive. I just wanted to be able to drink as much as I wanted to. And looking back on it, um, there is that my father and, and my grandfather, there's the genetic basis. And then there was also the, the environment that I emerged into. Um, and, and I got a handle on it, um, before it got out of control, before it ruined my career. But one of the differences mm-hmm. between me, the 18 year old me in the mid nineties and the 18 year olds in the two thousands and the, the 2010s is that I was dealing with the alcohol use as a matter of course, not complicated by going to combat. Um, by the time I went right. to combat, all of that was under control. And so young service members, to the same thing with college students, sure, you're going to have the same substance use interventions, but you're also going to have the, the PTSD and the deployments and, and everything else on top of it, which makes things a bit more complicated. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. And you know, a lot of the interventions that we... Uh, have developed with college students have kind of been based around social drinking. It's almost like this assumption that, you know, um, college students have a decent mental health and that if you're, you're drinking heavily, it's because you're drinking, you know, hang out with, with friends, um, uh, in, in those social settings. But I mean, a lot of times that's the case, but it's not always the case. And so some of the interventions that we have that have this kind of social pull could actually potentially benefit people that are drinking for these non-social reasons, some of these coping reasons. And um, I'll give you an example. The the main one that that um, we received some funding to actually do a, a pilot test of was this uh, approach called the personalized uh, normative feedback intervention. And so this is an approach that we've used, uh, that researchers have been using for um, many, many years with college students. And it seems to be one of the best um, components of, you know, larger interventions, but it also seems to be a really um, effective standalone intervention as well. And this is based on the assumption that people tend to drink or model their own drinking behavior off of what other people are doing. And it's not just what other people are actually doing. It's what we think people are doing. So... Um, you know, a good example is uh, if we're talking about college students, you know, a college student goes um, out to the bar and thinks, you know, that everybody at this bar is drinking, um, you know, 10 drinks. And they look around and they see that there are, you know, definitely some people that are drinking heavily, you know, because drunk people are usually, you know, pretty loud. They're making noises, um, you know, t- talking a lot. You might see them doing shots. Um, and so that kind of perception then, or this misperception starts to develop where you're thinking that everybody drinks really heavily. And so you don't want to be the only one at this bar who's not drinking. You know, you don't want to just be the one who's just having one or two and everyone looks like they're having a really good time when they're drinking 10. So, you know, you might increase your drinking to, to get to that level. Um, but what we found is that these are just college students and we've done a lot of work to show that veterans do the same thing. A lot of other groups do the same things as well as just grossly overestimate how much other people are drinking. Yes, people are drinking heavily and those are the people that stand out. But if you look at everybody within this bar or within this party, you know, or within this concert, there are a lot of people that are drinking, you know, not at all. There's a lot of people that are drinking, you know, just a little bit. And then there's people that are drinking kind of more, more moderately, um, and so what we do is we actually present um, the college students, and then in our in our pilot study, we actually presented veterans with these gender-specific, what we call norms, actual norms, of what drinking is like within um, your 
uh, your specific group. So if you were a, you know, a male veteran, we would say, um, here's how much uh, other male veterans like you actually drink. And we would correct their misperceptions that they have. So they're actually able to learn one that, you know, people like me don't drink nearly as much as I thought, but they're also able to kind of check in with themselves and just also might be able to notice, oh, wow, I actually drink more than, you know, is the norm more than what other people do. Um, whereas I, I thought I was just like everybody else. So it might serve as this reality check to actually reduce your drinking um, a little bit. And it's this really cool, I mean, it's such a simple approach, but it's just this really neat intervention that seems to work with college students. And like I said, we found some pretty neat effects with uh, veterans just after um, we've done this pilot study one month. We're trying to get more funding, looks promising, uh, to try to do it for up to a year and see if we can actually uh, make some changes for, for veterans um, using this approach for up to a year. Yeah, I can see how that it definitely will create a cascading effect. You know, if I think that everyone else is uh, drinking more than I start drinking more and then a buddy next to me sees me drinking mm -hmm. more and, you know, and it just it, it's sort of, um, you know, it's a race to the top or the bottom, depending on which way you're looking at it. Uh, but right. I think that a, that awareness piece is critical, right? You know, not realizing mm -hmm. um, that uh, that what we're engaging in, what our environment in is not normal, right? Um, it's almost like, right. you know, all fish are wet. And I look at that fish over there, he's wet, so I must be wet too. The, the, this is something that I've often um, tried to explain to those who had never served in the military is uh, the military has a a drinking culture. Um, and we can obviously talk about, um, you know, other substances too and, and how that emerges. Um, but, uh, you know, from the barracks, uh, to, you know, the, the officers ride arm nights and the celebrations mm -hmm. and the grog bowls and, um, and it's sort of this, you know, even a, the cliche of drunk as a sailor. Um, it, it's almost as if, you know, like you said, all, all college students are drunks so all, you know, in, and in my experience, it, 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 it really is because everybody or the majority of everyone is drinking. Um, the people who, who abstain entirely are in the, the vast minority, um, mm -hmm. but, but really when someone gets into the military and there is this, um, this, this culture of drinking, which sort of reshapes the norms in that individual's head. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, these norms, these norms come from somewhere, you know, so it's whether you're, um, you know, on base or whether you've discharged and now, you know, um, you're hanging out with veteran buddies or you're hanging out with civilians and, you know, you're looking around and thinking like, well, these people can't drink anything like, you know, um, my buddies used to drink. Like, so um, I know that my group drinks you know, more than other people do. We've, we've done some of this work with, you know, fraternities as well, where this, these are groups that know they drink more than other people. And so if you present them with some of these, uh, these norms about, you know, a typical college student on campus, you know, drinks this, they're going to look at that and say, well, that means nothing to me because I know I drink more than other people. And so veterans are kind of the same way. And so we did a couple of studies to figure out what what perceptions um, are going to be most effective, you know, most impactful on a veteran's own drinking. That's probably the best way to say it. So um, is it, you know, other, uh, let's say I'm an army, a male army veteran. So is it other, you know, uh, army veterans? Is it um, just male veterans? Is it army male veterans? And so what we actually found was it was these gender specific norms, which were most impactful because, you know, if you present um, the norms based off of the army, the women might be bringing the norm down because they drink less than the men, for example. And so you might look at that norm and then, and then discount it. Um, but going back to your point where kind of these norms form, they just, I mean, they form over time. They, they form by our actual um, uh, 
perceptions in the moment of what people are doing, just actually seeing somebody drink and, and attending to these things that are really standing out, but also just, you know, and PTSD is a great example. Like um, if you're going to see a, a veteran on, on TV or you're going to, um, they're going to portray, you know, a veteran who's struggling with, with issues. Um, well, this person has PTSD. And then you start to think, oh, well, PTSD is just all veterans have PTSD or all veterans, you know, drink really heavily, which is just not really the case. And um, I mean, it's not the case at all. And so that's where kind of these perceptions get started. They get started, you know, when you're a kid, you just get bombarded with these things and they just build up and build up until it becomes a, a, a truth for you. And then you do start attending to that. So every time you hear about, you know, a veteran doing something in the news, you know, you're kind of looking for that, maybe, you know, unconsciously, oh, this person had PTSD. Oh, this person was a really heavy drinker you know, and not attending to all the times where, you know, a, a veteran has done something good or bad, you know, where they didn't, they weren't struggling with these issues. No, I absolutely see that, especially with the, the focus on PTSD. And of course, and, and that's something, mm -hmm. again, that we've talked in the show here before is um, a lot of funding goes into PTSD and TBI research. And so we tend to find what we seek anyway, right? Um, yep. And so mm -hmm. that's some of it in, in our in our clinical role. But even the veterans themselves say, well, of course I have PTSD, right? If, if they see that there's things falling apart in their world and, and you know, the family isn't working and I'm not as satisfied as I was in the military, um, then, then they themselves assume and they've been told that, you know, it's, of course, it's PTSD. Um, and, and so it's a challenge even in the veterans not to be aware of their almost their self-stereotyping um, and their own frame of reference inside themselves is sort of lending to their own self-bias. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I know you've been a huge advocate for this too. It's just this whole, you know, seeking help. And so whether it's PTSD or not, you know, doesn't really matter. If you are somebody who is struggling with an issue, whether it's al heavy alcohol use, heavy marijuana use, you know, bad dreams, um, irritability, you know, all these things that could be, you know, related to a substance use disorder or related to PTSD or clinical depression or whatever you want to call it, you know, that'd be diagnosed by a clinical psychiatrist or a, a clinical psychologist. Um, you know, if you're somebody who's struggling, you could benefit from help. And, you know, we know that a lot, a lot of veterans uh, and service members do not seek help. And one of the reasons why they don't seek help is maybe because they feel like, well, my, my problem is not bad enough, or, you know, I don't have full-blown PTSD like this guy, or maybe, you know, PTSD is just for people who can't handle their problems on their own. I mean, it's just absolutely not true. I mean, every, I'm a clinical psychologist, of course, so I, I, you know, push for this, but I just think anybody can benefit from talking to somebody. There's really good people out there. There's also really good programs out there, you know, self-help books, you know, self-help programs, a lot of great online programs that we're trying to develop as well as um, ones that are already, you know, out there and, and apps and things. And it's just the help, the help is out there, but a lot of times it's just trying to get over some of those initial barriers that you might make for yourself, as well as, you know, some of the real logistical barriers out there, like trying to find time, you know, trying to find um, uh, care for your kids or whatever it is. Um, but I know you've been a proponent of this and I, and I um, you know, applaud you for that because I just think going in for treatment is never something that should be seen as a weakness. And we're starting to see that in our data that veterans do not actually view each other as weak if they have, you know, gone in for treatment. You don't have to tell everybody that you have PTSD or that you have depression or whatever. You can go in and say you're going in to, you know, just talk to somebody because you have an issue, you know, something that you're more comfortable with. I'm an issue with my wife or I'm having really poor sleep. And that's kind of the thing that I want to go talk to somebody about, you know? Yes. Uh, in, in, I, 
I recognize that. I appreciate, you know, the appreciation. And again, like you said, this is sort of, uh, people say, well, well, of course you would say that you're a therapist. Well, I was saying that even when I was a platoon sergeant and even when I was a first sergeant that said, look, you need to go talk to somebody. Um, I made it no secret when I was a first sergeant, it was after my, um, after my Iraq tour, it was 15 months. And then after my Afghanistan tour, my wife and I both went to marriage counseling. Uh, and I made mm-hmm. it no secret to my Great. platoon sergeants and my squad leaders. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, tops taken off because this is what I'm doing. And so it's, and, and again, that's something of, you know, somebody really getting over their, um, their initial hesitation to, to reach out and, and sort of, you know, break down that stigma. But you've done that yep. research, um, uh, that I'd mentioned before on um on our own perceptions of stigma how how veterans will apply stigma differently to themselves um than they do to other veterans um and and i found it honestly so interesting that i I created that infographic because it is it is Mm -hmm. so striking the differences are so striking so i'd like to hear about that particular study if you wouldn't mind yeah sure thing i mean this so it's and it's very it's related to the alcohol uh, misperceptions. So just like we you know have misperceptions about how much people are are actually drinking around us, you know we have misperceptions about you know what we think other people think about us or think about an issue. So um, you know one thing that they started doing at Rand with the Invisible Wounds of War project was to look at some of these um, barriers. I call them you know. Um, perceived barriers because they're, you know, these, these real logistical barriers. And then there are these kind of things that happen based off of your perceptions. And one of the, the main one is I think that people are going to view me negatively if I go in and seek care. Um, and, you know, when you're talking with a bunch of, I mean, these are people from the military, veterans and service members, arguably very, very tough people. You know, I get that. They think that, you know, it's, it might be uh, a weakness or other people might view it as a weakness to go in and, and get some help. This is something that I wasn't able to, you know, address myself. And what I wanted to actually look at was to see, is this, you know, these misperceptions, do you, is what you think different from, you know, what other people would actually think or what they would actually do? And so what we did was we asked, um, we asked the veterans, you know, how would, um, uh, how would you feel? Uh, how would you uh, feel towards somebody who went in for care for you know PTSD, depression, or, or substance use issues? Um, and pretty much they said, well, I wouldn't you know I wouldn't blame them for the problem. I wouldn't view them as weak. Uh, I wouldn't think any less of them. Uh, you know, and then we asked them, well, how do you think other people would view you if you went in for care for some of these things? And you know, it's just just striking to see this, uh, many of them said, well, they would see me as weak or they would think less of me or they would blame me for the problem. They're, they're going to treat me differently. And so it's just clear as day. We have these data where, you know, you think people will view you more negatively than you yourself would. Um, but when you take all those you yourselves and average them together, what you find is that most people don't care whether you're going for care or not, uh, care, uh, if you're going for treatment or not. In fact, they probably would encourage it. Um, you know, people like you that have gone in for care um, have talked really highly about it um, and said that, uh, you know, they've really benefited from it. Uh, it wasn't as bad as they thought. They didn't just throw a bunch of medication at me. We actually, you know, talked and we, um, you know, had a really great conversation and I really liked my therapist. Um, and I think the more and more people come out and talk about that, um, we will eventually learn that, you know, veterans can just they can benefit a lot from going into treatment. There's a lot they can get out of it. And it's not something that's seen as a weakness. 
but it's this, you know, this perception we have of how oh, other people are going to view me a certain way. Well, we have the data to show you that they don't really view you that way. They don't really care. Right. And, and you don't view them that way. I mean, every, every veteran mm-hmm. and majority of veterans that I know of, you know, my shield covers my brother. I'll, I'll let everybody cut in front of me in the chow line and even, you know, leaders eat last and all these kind of things is we're uh-huh. so focused on, on supporting others. And, and that's how things were in the military is that, you know, I supported my brother and sister and they supported me. Um, and, and so we definitely, we want everybody in the world to, to get the help that they need, um, except for ourselves. And then this issue mm-hmm. of, of isolation really is, is if things get very bad, uh, both with substance abuse and with these other conditions that we're talking about, uh, is then veterans will tend to isolate. And in that isolation, then they're the, thinking they're the only ones. Um, and, and it just sort of perpetuates itself. One of the um, mm-hmm. one of the most striking um, uh, points of data that uh, that came out of that study, forty four percent, almost half of veterans said they thought other veterans would see them as weak for seeking help. You know, so um, I would think that my buddy thinks that I'm weak for seeking help, but only twelve percent said that they would view other veterans as weak for seeking the same help. And and to me, that is a striking difference between sure. how I apply the stigma to myself to how I apply it to others. Absolutely. Yeah. And that, you know, that we call that, that misperception. So um, that misperception is something that actually, you know, we found with research studies that actually prevents people from, or veterans specifically, you know, from going in for care. So if we can kind of correct that misperception. Um, then maybe, you know, just like with, uh, with the drinking studies we're doing, maybe we can get you to, um, uh, pursue care, just as like maybe we can get you to drink a little bit less or experience a few, few, uh, fewer alcohol consequences. And so one of the things we want to do with this, um, with the follow-up study, uh, this personalized normative feedback uh, approach that we've uh, developed with veterans is to, you know, in addition to the alcohol norms we give them, give them these actual um, norms about uh, uh, how other veterans would view you and have veterans uh, have data from veterans who've actually sought care and ta- and uh, where they're talking about, you know, how beneficial it was or how it was different from what they thought and ended up um, being pretty good. And one of the ways we try to do that is um, try to reach out to them on on social media. So one of the uh, one of my main interests uh, has been uh, to find this population of veterans that could could benefit from help but is not seeking help. And it's it's a group that. You know, um, you've targeted um, some other researchers have targeted the VA has tried to target, but they're just they're just a hard group to reach because we don't really know where they are. I mean, it's if you a veteran who if you're one of 50 percent of veterans that actually goes to the VA, you know, let's just say you're going to go um, get a physical health exam, you know, and you see something in the in the lobby about uh, a mental health study or um you know, something that, that says, hey, are you having sleep trouble? Will you call this number? You know, if you never actually enter a VA, uh, like I said, 50% of them don't, you um, wouldn't be exposed to that. So then how do you actually go out and find the veterans in a community that are not walking through the doors of the VA? And so one of the things that we've done, and we've done it pretty successfully and want to try to continue um, to use the uh, social media to try to reach out is Facebook. And that's the one we started with, but we're going to try to test out a bunch of other uh, social media sites as well, um, where we you know, de- develop some, you, you call them ads. 
So when you're on Facebook and you're, you know, flipping through with your thumb, one of these things would come up and says, hey, are you a veteran, you know, interested in a research study or are you a veteran who's having sleep issues or worried about your drinking or whatever it is? Um, and they would click on that and then they would get directed to our, our, our study. Um, you can have some ads we had, you know, were about um, seeking help, but a lot of them were just about some of them, you know, really, it was a research study. So we highlighted, you know, the incentive that you can get, you know, 20 bucks to do a survey. Um, but also we've done studies where we've highlighted, you know, uh, helping other people or, you know, feeling better or um, uh, helping improve your family life, your relationship, things like that. And what we found was that veterans are clicking on these things um, and they are getting uh, involved in these programs that we've developed and they're actually um, receiving these programs, um, these pretty brief programs. And it's just from a public health point of view, just this really, um, uh, just a really great way to one, reach them, but also deliver them some of these evidence-based programs um, because these are people that might never have received uh, care or uh, uh, programs in another way. See, and, and you're right. I mean, I do think uh, that that's very critical. I've um, <clears throat> a couple of things that that brings to mind is, uh, number one, just the vast number of veterans who could benefit from these treatments compared to those that actually um, use the treatments uh, again. And, and I, I seem to talk about it every time, especially when we're talking about data, um, when it's the, the, the National Academies of Science, Engin Engineering and Medicine um, study that came out the beginning of last year. Uh, which mm -hmm. showed that 50% of post 9-11 veterans screen positive for some form of mental health concern, um, but less than half of them were actually engaged, or even less than half of them even realized that they had a problem. So there is that perception of, okay, well, maybe, you know, yeah, maybe I have sleeping problems or, or maybe there's relationship, but it's not related to my mental health. And so there is right. a whole gap of information um, that, that kind of um, breaks down. And, uh, and, and exactly what you're talking about is, mm -hmm. is how do we reach them on, on social media? Again, several years ago, I had somebody, when I was talking about this saying, we need to, you know, we need to start getting on Facebook. Um, and, and somebody turned to me and it wasn't an, an older veteran. It was just somebody probably about contemporary, my same age saying, you know, I don't think veterans are using social media to search veteran mental health. Uh, and I said, have you been on Facebook lately? Because they sure are talking a lot about PTSD, TBI and stuff on Facebook. Yeah. And Facebook's neat because you can actually, you know, tailor your keywords to things that, um, you know, you think the veterans might be involved in. So, for example, we've done a lot. We've done some work with uh, veterans who play video games and, um, you know, a Call of Duty or, or Fortnite, things like that. And so um, we actually would target a set of ads, you know, towards people who played video games. Now, you got to be a little careful with that because you might also get a lot of, you know, uh, you know, just adolescent um, boys and girls that also see your ads. You have to be a little more specific in your targeting. But I mean, you can have these targeted targeted campaigns on Facebook um, and some of these other social media sites uh, where you can try to reach people that might you know, there's like the really hidden, hidden uh, people, uh, veterans, where they're not actually advertising for themselves that they're veterans or they're not talking about these things. But, um, you know, they might come across this thing and say, like, oh, OK, this looks pretty interesting. Um, there's also, you know, veteran social media sites where you actually have to be a veteran or an active duty service member to um, register for some of these sites. Um, and so those are another great, great place. You don't want to be on Facebook. Fine. But, you know, you might be on some of these sites. Um, there's also family members. So, you know, we had ads up 
that would, uh, you know, mention like, hey, do you know anybody like this? Or do you know anybody that could benefit from this? I mean, this is a really easy thing to do. They just click on this link, you know, here, just send this to them. And so um, family members and friends can also be another way to reach people or veterans that are not actually, you know, using some of these social media sites. You know, that's exactly how um, I found uh, myself doing as much or, or more with the blog um, and the podcast, um, simply because there is such a response where it's it's a passive way to to sort of receive the information. Uh, and, and I've mm-hmm. actually seen this work, too, as, as you've said, you know, your research bears it out. But uh, back in episode 82, we had Dr. Carmen McLean, um, and she was trying to recruit veterans for an online prolonged exposure study. Um, she was linked up to me probably about 10 days before her, uh, the time ended. Um, and she had only had 28 of the 40 participants identified and signed up and they had been doing it for months. Um, and, and this isn't bragging. This is literally how it worked was I wrote a blog post. I pushed it out on social media. Um, and through sharing that, um, not just me, but also people sharing it out, she got an additional 12 participants in 10 days, um, no, that's great. Yeah, it just off. I mean, and that's and that goes to show. And one of the things that she said was interesting is that a lot of these veterans were clicking to sign up at at midnight, one, two in the morning, mm-hmm. which is where we expect that they would. Those individuals that are up in the middle of the night and they're in some sort of, I mean, not not full on distress. And this is the issue. It's not like you know people have this idea that you know the veteran is you know is is huddled in a cold dark room in the middle of the night in the suicide prevention line. No, this is somebody that just you know can't get to sleep, slept a couple hours, and now they're up and they're watching late night TV and they're just kind of frustrated and low grade. And like you said, they're just thumbing through Facebook or Twitter or LinkedIn mm-hmm. or whatever. And and then this pops up and, and having it, it's almost like, uh, you know, I call it operationalizing serendipity, putting something in mm-hmm. somebody's um, f- uh, face that they need to see when they need to see it. Yep. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think, you know, you need to, you need to make it easy for people. And so, you know, if it's, all right, well, click, click this, you know, link on your phone and then, you know, go fire up your computer and use this code that we're going to send. And then we're going to text message you and type that in, you know, it's like at some point, you know, the group you're trying to get is the group that you really just kind of have to catch when you can catch. So, um, uh, I think, you know, trying to make it as easy as possible. So for example, with our program, you're, you're going through Facebook, you see the ad, you click the ad, you read a consent form right there on your phone, you click okay. And then you can actually see the program, you know, on your phone right there, kind of in the moment, I'm ready to do it. Let's do it. Um, and so I think that approach is, is really helpful because you do want to get people when, you know, they're just, you know, in the mood or it's just, you know, they got some time right now, let me try it. Um, you know, and like with these, uh, social media campaigns, you could you could fund these things to just pop up once and they, they see it once, or you can fund them to try to hit people multiple times so that you are able to, um, you know, get them in that moment. I think about, you know, Facebook ads as, as annoying as they can be, you know, I'll see the same, the same ad for shoes, you know, 10 times and on the 10th time laying in bed and just thinking about like, yeah, you know, I actually could use these shoes. <laughs> Maybe I'll click on that. You know, um, I think the same thing can happen for, you know, outreach and, and trying to reach veterans where they're at. Sure, you know, and they say that uh, well, this is a, a marketing thing, uh, but you know, somebody needs to hear a message five times in three different ways for it to kind of sink in, to be mm-hmm. able to say that this is what I'm doing. And and this is one thing that I've lamented is is we just don't have very good PR in the mental health field. Um, you know, mm-hmm. we don't do ourselves any favors. We, 
And, and, and some of it is just because of, you know, maybe the nature of, of individuals, right? Where, you know, we close our door and what happens behind closed doors and it's very much private and confidential as it should be. Um, but we don't get, uh, we don't do very well in trying to express how well some of these interventions work. Uh, and like you said, communicating to veterans and their families where they're at. Um, reducing the barriers is critical because a veteran does not need much of a reason to avoid mental health and, and therapy. You know, any reason will be an insurmountable just because it would, it's hard for them to overcome that stigma in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, we, then the things we, the things we talk about, you know, can kind of perpetuate, you know, the negativity of things. So if you're somebody who, as, so you guys have talked about prolonged exposure before on the, um, on the podcast. I mean, this is, it's a, it can be a pretty intensive intervention, but it's also probably the most effective one for PTSD that we have. And so, you know, somebody that has gone to one session, you know, and then, and then dropped out, um, might then go and tell his or her buddies, you know, this, this was pretty bad. They just made me talk about this, this uh, traumatic experience, which is, you know, not what prolonged exposure is. You have somebody who then, you know, has completed prolonged exposure or started to see, see some of the benefits of it, really advocating for it and talking about it and saying like, yeah, this was a little challenging, but, you know, I understand that things that are really worth pursuing and things that are going to help me get better are you know, challenging at first to the point where, I mean, wow, I'm not experiencing most if, if any of those uh, or any of those symptoms that I used to have. And so it's, you know, I think it's having advocates like yourself, um, share their experiences uh, with people and say, yeah, this was something that was, that was pretty tough and I was pretty apprehensive at first, but you know, I, I did it and I stuck through it and it really seemed to work. So kind of promoting that, uh, uh, promoting um, rather than just the, the negative experiences that people have, really the positive experiences that people, with ha that people have. You know, and that's, that's something else that I've also seen is we talk about this misapplication of um, internal versus external perceptions of stigma. Um, mm -hmm. I've seen in, you know, and this is definitely anecdotal because I'm not a researcher. Um, but if, vet if a veteran has a bad experience with therapy, they go back to their buddies and say, it's all crap therapies, you know, it was horrible. It made things worse. And, and it's just, it's, mm -hmm. it's not good. But if they have a good experience with therapy, they say, my clinician is good. This therapist that I see is the only one that's good, right? So it's a, if it's bad, it's a general experience, but if it's good, it's a very specific experience. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. And, you know, the, um, I mean, the VA is not the only place there's a VA has, you know, specifically trained, um, clinicians to deal with, um, PTSD and veteran issues, but, um, there's also, you know, a lot of good community providers, but you also want to try to find a community provider that, you know, is familiar with, um, you know, uh, veteran mental health. So maybe somebody that trained at a VA or somebody that has had some um, uh, military cultural competency training. Um, because I think a lot of times what, what happens is a veteran says, well, I don't want to go to the VA because I don't want anything to do with the VA. They go and they find a clinician, you know, who might not even ask them if they're a veteran um, and just doesn't really understand that culture at all. It doesn't Sometimes there's a perception that, you know, a veteran has to talk to a veteran. Um, if you're really comfortable, if that's the only way you're going to be comfortable talking with somebody, I mean, you can, you can find, um, you can find that. But there are many, many veterans out there in the community that, um, you know, have received some, some cultural competency, uh, military cultural competency for how to deal with veteran issues, um, specifically. Yes, and, and and you didn't have a military background, and yet you have, um, you know, your your experience in um, 
in both providing services and then researching. Um, and, and you don't have to have served. I'm, I am, even though I have my military experience and, you know, combat vet and all that, um, I recognize number one, that that may not always be what, um, what the veteran needs. I personally have to be very conscious to not allow a therapy session to turn into two guys swapping war stories, um, yeah. <laughs> which, which it, it, it could possibly get to. Um, and so, but, but then you don't have to have served to be able to serve veterans. But I agree, you do have to, to work to understand um, veteran culture and veteran mindset. Mm-hmm. And, and you don't have to have been on the ground in Ramadi, but you at least have to find Ramadi on a map. Exactly. Yeah. Or at least, I mean, I mean um, you know, Rand has done quite a bit of work on this, uh, too, looking at uh, community providers um, and finding that a lot of them are not equipped to, to deal with veteran issues. You know, the VA is, is very equipped, um, but sometimes you can't get into the VA or it's too far away. So, you know, there's also a lot of these um, uh, online programs or, you know, self-help or, or telehealth programs where you're um, that are specifically designed for veterans and service members, um, where you are either talking with somebody or you're at least reading some content or getting some feedback that's based on um, people that know what they're talking about when it comes to, to veteran mental health. So, yeah, I think it's I think you're absolutely right. I think you kind of have to find a, um, a good balance, um, find somebody who um, uh, definitely has some of that uh, military cultural competence in order to specifically handle some of the the issues that you might bring up. And, you know, this is that might be just assuming that, um, you know, these are military specific issues. So, you know, it probably comes up quite a bit, but it might not be the only issue that you're you're dealing with. So if you want to find a marriage counselor and, you know, your military background doesn't really um, affect the um what you're talking about in therapy, then maybe that's okay. And you go and you see kind of your, your own therapist, uh, for some of those military issues. Um, yeah. Yeah. And and that's exactly right. And this is one thing, again, the research has shown, um, that someone who has, um, a greater amount of adverse child childhood experiences, um, is more likely to develop both substance use and, and be more susceptible to trauma as an adult, um, and I often say that the military is as much a running away from something as it is a running to something. Um, and so a, a number of service members come into the military already having some of these concerns. Um, and, uh, and, you know, and again, somebody, somebody who's working with a veteran needs to be able to understand, you know, what is it that I'm actually dealing with here? Um, is it the childhood stuff? Is it the, the combat stuff? Is it the post-combat stuff? I've, um, yeah. you know, worked with, uh, with Vietnam veterans that, you know, they've, they've dealt with Vietnam a long time ago, but they're really harboring, uh, resentment over those 15 years after Vietnam where they, they weren't allowed to be who they were and so mm-hmm. on. Uh, so it really is needing to understand exactly what the issue is. Yeah. Um, and I know, um, you know, I- you're right. The, your, you know, all your experiences kind of make you who you are and make you make certain decisions and lead you up to where you are. Um, you know, and a lot of that, um, a lot of how you learn how to cope with things, um, can then translate to, you know, when, when major issues come up. So if you're somebody that, you know, has been, has learned to cope with really stressful situations by, you know, having a couple beers or smoking pot or whatever it is, well, now you've experienced this, um, you know, this combat trauma and you're starting to experience PTSD symptoms and you're kind of finding that you're able to manage those symptoms through the use of 
alcohol or marijuana or other substances or whatever it is. Um, and then the more and more you do that, the more and more you learn that, oh, this is actually something that I think uh, is effective. I can't sleep. So I get really drunk and now I can sleep and I don't have nightmares. So I don't think about, you know, this, this, these terrible things that happened to me. Um, and so I know you've, you've been an advocate for this too, but the, you know, the overlap between depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, most of the mental, uh, other mental health disorders, you know, there's a lot of overlap with those and substance use issues. And that is becoming, you know, um, uh, more and more uh, out in focus now at the VA um, and uh, for uh, other programs and for community providers, as well as, um, uh, you know, evidence-based programs um, where we are trying to target both of those things at the same time. The model used to be, you know, you'd come into a VA or you'd come into a a hospital and say, um, you know, I'm experiencing these PTSD symptoms and I'm drinking really heavily. And they would say, okay, well, we'll get the drinking under control first and then we'll deal with the the PTSD because it's going to interfere with your therapy. But the reason you're drinking is because of the PTSD symptoms. So, you know, you stop drinking and now your PTSD symptoms ramp up and now you're going to start drinking a lot more to deal with those again. So the model is really, has really become in, in more recent years um, and as uh, more and more research is coming out about this, that, you know, we really need to focus on both of these things at the same time because there is so much overlap um, between them. I mean, just in prevalence rate between PTSD, depression, substance use issues um, for veterans specifically, um, but also just effective models to actually target both of these things because you can't just remove one. Um, you can't just remove the substance and, and think that somebody's going to be okay managing their symptoms after they've learned to manage them, you know, somewhat effectively, you know, um, by, uh, uh, by, uh, by drinking or using drugs or whatever. Yes. I mean, that's, that's certainly true. I mean, we don't do it in the medical space, right? If I have pancreatic cancer and diabetes, they don't say, okay, we're going to treat your diabetes and wait for that. And then we'll get the cancer under control, right? No, we're going to, we're going to address everything um, together And in how you brought up earlier is, and I see this all the time with, with veterans that I talk to um, that uh, maybe their social drinking takes off before their deployments. Um, but then their drinking really takes off after the deployment but they're not drinking socially anymore, right? There's a difference between having a couple of beers uh, at the barbecue to um, me sleeping or me drinking in the basement by myself with the lights off, right? And and it it Mm -hmm. stops becoming social uh, and it becomes, you know, we talk about it. And even the veterans talk about it, self-medicating. I self-medicated so long and and I did this, um, again, because it's easier to (laughs) – there are more liquor stores than therapists, that's for sure, right? And you can you can get to the liquor store quicker than you can get into to see a mental health professional, and nobody's going to judge you for seeing you outside, seeing your your jeep parked outside of a liquor store. Whereas you feel that this goes back to your perceptions, you feel that people will judge you um, if you if they see you parked out of a therapist's office. Yeah, yeah, no, it's true. Um, you know, and another thing too is um, uh, is you know. Uh, there's sometimes these misperceptions that, you know, if, if you do drink, I mean, a lot of people enjoy drinking and enjoy drinking socially. Uh, a lot of people enjoy, you know, especially now in, um, in our state, California, um, you know, marijuana is recreational marijuana is uh, legal or the sale and possession is now legal in our state. So, you know, if you enjoy doing those things and you can do them in a way where it's not severely impacting your life, I mean, a therapist is not going to tell you, Hey, you can't drink anymore. I mean, a, 
your um, primary care physician might tell you that. Um, you know, if, if it's if you have um, cirrhosis of the liver, they might say you need to stop. But if you have PTSD or depression, you know, I, they'll help you make the connection between the function of the drinking or the function of the pot smoking or whatever it is um, and your symptoms. So, you know, these symptoms pop up, you know, when they pop up, you start to drink, you notice that they reduce a little bit and you get in a fight with your wife and fall asleep and, and um, you know, uh, sleep through your kid's uh, dance recital the next day, you know, and, and that's how all this is connected. It's not, you need to completely stop or you need to, you need to um, uh, cut this out completely. It's, Using them in a, a social way, and this I was I'm from a, a harm reduction model, which is um, abstinence is the ultimate harm reduction, of course. But um, I think there's this something that keeps veterans uh, who are drinking or using or using drugs away from from therapy is this perception that they're not going to be able to use. You might be able to. It's just all about the function of why you use. And are there things you can do instead of drinking? You know six or eight drinks, uh, when you're feeling stressed that can help reduce that stress, you know, instead so that you, you know, don't get in a fight with your wife and then you're able to make the dance recital the next day. You know, that is, that is an excellent point. And, uh, and of course not revealing, um, definitely not details, but, uh, this puts me in mind of a, a particular veteran who, uh, came in to see me for one particular issue, um, mm-hmm. that was exacerbated by the alcohol, the alcohol, his uh, use was the primary issue, um, but he wanted help with this other thing. Um, and he said, if I can just get that under control because I've been drinking for X amount of years and it's fine. Um, but, but it was all in isolation and he had no reference of it. And we went through, and again, this is part of that awareness piece of, um, we actually went through the assessments that can, that are identified. We use the, uh, uh, the SASE, the substance abuse, subtle screening inventory, uh, so okay. we went through the, the SASE and, um, and I showed him according to the diagnostic and statistics manual, um, that he met every single criteria for severe alcohol use disorder and that he was in the 99th percentile of, um, you know, of someone, uh, according to the SASE uh, and he had no, he didn't realize it because everybody in his family, as you said, it's this, uh, you know, uh-huh. a normative model of, well, everybody else around me, around me drinks and I'm usually the last one, which means I'm king of the hill. Um, but it wasn't until we actually said, no, brother, this is what we're actually dealing with. Um, and, and thankfully, um, uh, that veteran is now well over one year sober, um, since, uh, since he started oh, working with, yeah, I mean, and that's a, but, but he had no realization that that was the issue. He, I mean, it just, he was like, I, I, I came to, you know, it's sort of like I'm going to go in because, you know, I have these uh, chest pains and then you find cancer, um, but you got to deal with both. And, and that's really it, trying to tease those two things apart um, is less effective than, as you said, treating them both together. Yep. Yeah, no, that's, that's I mean, that's a great anecdote. Um, I think that's great to hear. I mean, I have some anecdotes like that, too, um, you know, working at the VA. And, um, you know, I think. Uh, maybe the last thing I'll say is on this is, um, you know, it's, it's not, I've always viewed substance use and, you know, the research shows this too. It's just, it's not, it's not a fundamental flaw in who you are. I mean, sometimes there's, there's tons of stigma about substance use and, 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 you know, alcoholics, quote unquote, um, and people that, uh, or druggies, people that use substances to manage their symptoms. These are, you, you're doing this because you've learned that it's something that has helped you in the past. It's a way that you've managed your symptoms or you've managed your stress or whatever. And so why would I mean why wouldn't you use that? You found that it it, it works. 
but it's making those connections between where it's where it's not working. Um, you know, usually in these higher levels or where it's affecting your family life or your health or whatever. And so there are other things you can do to try to manage um, those symptoms that you're having without using those substances. And that's, I mean, that's what therapy is. Therapy is not somebody yelling at you and telling you never to drink again. Um, it's, it's somebody helping you notice those patterns uh, between uh, your symptoms and, um, uh, and how to effectively manage them in a positive way. You know, it, that is, uh, it, it, that's a great point. And just to be able to say, you know, it, it, any more than saying, you know, rock climbing really helps me deal with this or, or going to the gym, um, you, you know, the stigma isn't, you can overindulge in those things to the detriment of your, your life and lifestyle um, in different mm-hmm. ways um, as you can to, to alcohol. It just happens to be that the substances have a physical impact um, on your 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 innards, I guess. But yeah, I mean, and, and that's a, that's some really great points. No, I, I really Thank appreciate you, you uh, coming on and, and talking today. Sure. Um, so if somebody wanted to find more about the work that you're doing or, or, or definitely reach out and connect on social media, how can they find you? Uh, well, I am on Twitter, as you know, I've, uh, I'm relatively new to Twitter, but trying to share as much as my own work as well as Rand's work as well. It's just, uh, Eric R. Peterson, uh, E-R-I-C, letter R, and then Peterson is spelled P-E-D-E-R-S-E-N. Um, you can also go to rand.org, uh, and look up, uh, my name there. I have a website with a lot of this information about the, uh, intervention that we've done and, uh, a link to all the research studies that we've, we've done, uh, yeah, using social media. Yeah, that's great. I'm definitely going to make sure that uh, all of those links are in the show notes so uh, people can go in and check out and, and see what you're doing. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks so much, Jane. Really appreciate it. You're listening to Headspace and Timing, where we're trying to change the way that we think and talk about federal mental health. As you can tell, Eric is passionate about trying to help both service members and college students change their behavior if they want to. As I've often told my therapy clients, if you know why you're doing something and you're not hurting yourself, someone else, or doing something illegal, then go for it. That sure goes for drinking your substance use. Using alcohol or other drugs to an unhealthy degree is hurting yourself. I'm not advocating that you go out and do that kind of stuff. I'm not a fan of using something external to us to do things that we can do for ourselves, like manage stress, tolerate distress, or manage our emotions. The same thing goes with therapy, though. If you know why you're avoiding therapy and not going to therapy isn't a problem, then so be it. But if you're avoiding therapy because you don't think it would do any good, or your buddy said it doesn't work, or you think therapists don't get it, then you're basing your avoidance on false assumptions. The bottom line is this. If you're suffering in some way, then reach out for help. If you saw a buddy suffering as bad as you're suffering, you would certainly tell them to get help. That's what Dr. Peterson's research tells us. Along with making sure that your battle buddy is taken care of, then take care of the battle buddy in the mirror. We can't take care of each other if we're not around to do it. Thanks for taking the time to check us out. If you want to find the show notes for this episode, go to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash HST097. While you're there, share the link with someone that you think may enjoy it. While you're checking it out, consider dropping a rating or review on the show. It helps for the show to rank higher in searches. You can find out how to share feedback on the podcast player you use by going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash platforms. 
we have another way for you to give feedback too. You can drop me a line at info at to recommend guests, make suggestions, or just send a quick note of appreciation. And speaking of appreciation, you can now get me a cup of coffee. As you may or may not know, this is an independent project that makes no money and takes some time. It's a passion, of course, but there are costs to putting it on. If you feel like you can spare a bit for a cup of coffee, then you can head on over to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash coffee to put some paper in the tip jar. Just a reminder that the guests and information on this show are for educational purposes only and are not meant to be considered professional advice. While I am a therapist, I'm not your therapist. If something you heard today makes you think you should talk to somebody, then reach out and do so. I'd like to thank Doc Todd for giving us permission to use his track, Not Alone, from his album Combat Medicine. Doc's trying to bring the discussion about veteran mental health out of the darkness and into the light, and you can see all of his work at therealdoctod.com. Make sure to join us next week for another great episode, and until then, remember, veterans, you're not alone, ever. The struggle is real, found a piece and lost a soul Eventually my drinking, it got out of control There in darkness I roam, struggling to find home See suddenly death didn't feel so alone 22 a day, destination unknown It could have been avoided if you picked up the phone But now you're gone, so I guess all we get is the tone Nothing but bone weeds, overgrown, pushing up stones I've triumphed over enemies, co-created mini-me's Broke out facilities that tried to put an end to me R.I.P., I'd rather grind in tranquility Authentic tendency, embrace my ability
Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military, but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes.